I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hi, this is Lainey. Hi, it's Duanna. And welcome to Show Your Work. We're sorry we missed last week, but we are back. We are recovered from the Oscars. Yeah, it has been, I don't know, 72 hours since I was last three feet from you. Um, I feel like not everyone else has recovered from the Oscars, though, because we're still talking about the Oscar, well, the drama, the controversy, the oh, scandal, wow. Look at you the mistake. This, I was going to ease our way in with some talk about candy or like these, <laughs> um, we ate these limon chips that uh, you can't get here at home that like sustained us through Oscar night. Can you not night. get the limon lace? No. Okay. That is a U.S. delicacy. Uh, hi, friends south of the border that I really enjoy. Um. Okay, well, I didn't know that we couldn't get those. You know, we can't, we, like when I get those um, Cheetos. Those are weird. I, those, um, they're great. Jalapeno Cheetos. I haven't been able to find those here. Like the red hot Cheetos. I mean, look, it's a thing that when you go to the US and you visit the candy aisle of like a Target or a place like that, every variety of every candy that you can think of yep. is there to be perused and then also in Easter egg form. That sustains us through an all-nighter. Although I wonder if Americans come here and say, oh my God, ketchup chips. Well, I hope so. But uh, just to fully go off topic, but one time sitting around this very table, uh, one Sarah was here, Sarah contributor to Laney Gossip. And I very generously, as far as I'm concerned, was like, hi, Sarah, here, I brought you some ketchup chips. And she looked at them (laughs) with a bit of a furrowed brow. (laughs) And then sort of went, oh, those are for later, and tucked them away. And we did not eat the ketchup chips. So I just want to say, you know, there's an unopened bag of ketchup chips somewhere in Chicago. I feel like every actor who comes to Canada, at least who's come on our show, the TV show, The Social or E-Talk, talks about ketchup chips. That, why don't we have these in the U.S.? Oh, my God, they're so good. And then we send them away with ketchup chips. I also heard that Smarties are different here. Yeah, Smarties are Smarties here. What are they there? Rockets. So they don't have, right, they don't have Smarties in America. Well, they have M&M's. No. Smarties and M&M's are totally different. But if you go to the States and ask for Smarties, you're going to get Rockets. Meanwhile, everybody listening in the States is like, no, those are Smarties, guys. Yes. Yeah. Anyway, so our snacks, Limon, which I didn't know. And yeah, I, someone send me a box of those Fucking amazing Fiesta Jalapeno Cheetos. They're so good. None of these people are paying us to talk about them, though. So anyway, maybe we should move on. No, we would maybe be more discerning with our <laughs> with our snack families, if so. I think we crossed all the, the big families. But yes, all-nighter, big talking, still all talking. All-nighter that we had to throw out our rundown. Oh, yeah. Tossed completely our rundown because of the big thing that happened. Of course, that would be Best Picture and the accountant screwing it up and everybody's still like, how could this happen? And the Academy, two years in a row, if it's not one controversy, it's the other. 
like one of the things that I feel maybe even though we told everybody about our night in painstaking detail, something that might have been missed is that in all the ridiculous sort of gobsmacked excitement, at one point, like Dylan lifted me off the ground just to do something with the energy of, oh my God, what's happening? That was in my post. What's happening? Yes, we were out of our minds. Even sitting here now, I feel like I need to like press on a vein in my neck in order to uh, channel the feelings of watching that happen on live television. I it's it's a high wire act. Seeing it go so spectacularly wrong with an organization that is known for whatever debatable, but essentially the academy is known for perfection and elitist and high. The highest, uh, I love the highest level of award show prestige. That kind of fuck up. It was. I mean, I said to you at one point during the night, "Would you have changed this for the world?" And of course, we are not involved with La La Land or with Moonlight, so their answers would be different. But your answer was, "Fuck no, <laughs> no, why?" And even for Moonlight, I think not. Um, and here's why. I think more people will go to see it now than they would have if it had just won and it was like, oh, thank you so much. People would have done what they do, what everybody who is now mad told us they did, which is like, oh, we heard Best Picture announced and we turned off the TV and went to bed. If you did that, you missed the greatest moment. And if Moonlight had just won and that was it, you would have missed the greatest moment. I think now, because there's a controversy, because there's an idea that one was stolen from the other, even though that's not the case, I think there's more of an appetite to see Moonlight, to see what it's all about than there would have been if it was just, oh, a movie I didn't see one best picture. I... I just can't believe that day after day we have more stories about who the accountant is. Like, I now know this man's name. I will not forget it, ever. Both names, in fact. We are making… It's actually really interesting because I was going to tell this uh, to you. We are watching them become tabloid staples this week. What's his name? Brian Cullihan. Do you know her name? Martha Ruiz. Yeah. And And the story of what he was doing and what she was doing. I know to the minute what and where they were doing and who messed up where and whose analysis of which situation is most accurate. I could pick out her red dress in a lineup. I know where Jimmy Kimmel was (laughs) at the exact moment. Yes. This is what happens. This is how the entertainment world makes celebrities. Except in this case, they're, you know, celebrities that we want to criticize and mock and whatever. And they're partners at a huge accounting firm. Okay, well, let's just pause for a second. Are they scapegoats? For? For anyone else. To me, it is exceedingly convenient that the accountants, and, you know, I acknowledge they have a bigger role in a production than most most, uh, productions might have who involve accountants. It's very convenient to me to say, oh, these are two accountants who don't work for the academy and who never will work for the academy again, and ha, 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 dust off our hands, and that problem is gone. It's weird to me that they are blaming those people as opposed to somebody closer to the production 
uh, somebody who should have been escorting them. If we're really getting into it, you don't let an outsider, no matter how important their job, just do their job unchecked. In my experience, there's usually two to five PAs to producers on that person, making sure they do their job. There are too many people in the kitchen doing the job, not too few. I Ordinarily, I would agree with you. It's just that it really doesn't look good, especially for Brian, especially when there are pictures that have come out of him with a timeline tweeting about Emma Stone. So the moment that certain things are happening, Variety broke it down really well, where like 9.03 p.m., Pacific. This was happening on stage and this was what Brian was doing. He was taking pictures of Emma Stone and here's the tweet that was posted right away. Like, I agree. Maybe there would have been, yes, in your, in your argument, you're like, maybe a member of the Academy should have been standing right beside him saying, hey, hey, Brian, get off your phone. I'm suggesting there was. Um, like, I would, I look at the photo. I he see, was, I saw the photos. I know was, what he tweeted and he applied to be able to tweet, because you know if he wasn't yes. allowed, he would have been shut down. Yeah. But I don't buy it. Not in absolution. I don't buy that the only two people who are responsible to make sure that the right people have the right envelopes are people who don't work for the Academy and never will and never will again. I'm saying he would have been assigned at least one person from the academy, from the production side, to supervise him, to make sure he was doing his job. Maybe if he was new, but, like, these two have been there for many years. Like, they're not new to the production. My understanding is that they're veterans, and then this firm is, like, has been doing the Oscars for, what, 80-something years? So maybe it was, like, getting too comfortable. That's a case of, hey, these guys have been there before. They know the drill. Uh, So we don't really have to be on them as closely as we normally would, whatever. And, oh, look, what happens? You can't trust anybody. I don't know. I'm just saying you are the one who taught me about skepticism in all things. And I would look askance at this a little bit. I think it's really easy to, you know, rather than blame the Academy, have these people, we know their names. We know what they were wearing. As you say, there are targets on their backs and now literally targets on their backs. My interpretation of it, on one hand, your skepticism, there's another option, which is literally the fame hoariness of our society with social media has penetrated and consumed and lured even the most unlikely of candidates. Like, you would think that an accountant would be the least likely person to be an Instagram whore or somebody who's like, oh, look at me. I'm so close to Emma Stone. I'm tweeting this so everybody and my followers can know that I was backstage at the Oscars. I mean, we all do it. I Instagrammed all night that night being like, hey, everybody, guess where I am? And I feel like that compulsion is where nobody isn't, um, what, vulnerable to it. All I'm saying is somewhere in the depths of Hollywood, in the quietest parts of, you know, the diners where they have postmortems, somebody is becoming excoriated over not supervising the accountants, those fame-hoary accountants, the way they were supposed to. While we're on the subject of the Oscars, we got an email just tonight, mm-hmm. happens to be while we were recording this podcast, about um, 
the process of accepting awards at the Oscars. Okay. So this is from a reader called V. Mm-hmm. Um, v is her initial. Um, and it's a very, uh, it's, not, it's not like a regular run-of-the-mill name, so I don't want to like out her. Um, okay, so here's what V wants to know. Uh, I have a question. Why was Barry Jenkins one of the people to accept the Oscar for Moonlight if he's not one of the producers? The card that was held up for all to see listed Adele, Dee Dee, and Jeremy. I understand he's the director, of course, but when Lala won, quote, before the mix-up, Damien Chazelle was at the back of the stage. Barry did an amazing directing job, but was wondering why all the focus this week on the speech Barry would have given, presuming no announcement mix-up, if only producers give best pick speeches anyway. I believe I also saw a pic of him getting the Oscar engraved with his name. Is it a matter of the producers including him out of his respect for his talents or the announcement mix-up causing further mix-ups, blah, 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 in which case why didn't the La La producers ask Damien to speak for the correction? Just seems like the Moonlight producers might have gotten even further overlooked with the focus on Barry. Okay, so yes, like technically um, for Best Picture, it's the producers who are listed on the card and they get to go up on stage and do the talking. And in theory, that's what happens most of the time. That's right. Um, And one of the reasons why is there's no best producer Oscar. That's what best picture is in some ways because there is a best director, there is a best writer, there are best performances. So even if some of those people are uh, are also producers, you're hearing from the producers. If you're hearing scraping at this moment, it's because we have a full-on menagerie of dogs here in the recording studio slash dining room. <laughs> of my house. <laughs> so there's, uh, there's some, some doggy daycare activity happening, and we hope it contributes to your listening experience. But yes, uh, one of the reasons that Best Picture is accepted by producers is because there's not another time for the producers to speak. The reason you saw Barry getting his name engraved on the Oscar, though, is because, of course, he and Terrell McCraney actually won the Oscar for um, Best Screenplay. Um, so that would have been Barry Jenkins' Best Adapted Screenplay, Sorry. we should say, because right. that is different than Best Original. It was adapted yes. from, uh, I believe, from, from Terrell McCraney. play. Yes. yes. Um, in Moonlight, Black Boys Look Blue. That's right. Um, so Barry's individual Oscar would have been for that, that category. Yeah. If you co-win an Oscar, you get two. Remember the shot of Matt and Ben. That's right. Holding two Oscars for one script. I will say though, that this is not out of the ordinary, or we have seen it before where the director of a film speaks instead of the producers. And in my memory, the most recent of those um, were, in my memory, the most recent would have been 12 Years a Slave. And this is one of the reasons why Brad Pitt is so beloved among so many people in Hollywood. He produced 12 Years a Slave with Dee Dee Gardner. And when 12 Years a Slave was called up as Best Picture, he did go up on stage with everybody else. He spoke for all of three seconds, maybe less, and then ceded the stage to Steve McQueen, the director of 12 Years a Slave. And now many people complimented Brad Pitt for that because, you know, in theory, some people believe that the producers provide, yes, the emotional support, 
the money support. It is the money and the influence and the resources. Obviously, Brad Pitt's clout had a lot to do with both Moonlight and 12 Years a Slave. But for Brad Pitt, he was like, no, but the artist of this film is Steve McQueen, the director. I am not going to talk. I am going to allow Steve McQueen, the director of this film about slavery, this black man, to take the stage and speak. And so many people remember that as one of Brad Pitt's most shining moments. So it does happen. It has happened before. And I wonder if this also is a similar scenario with um, Barry Jenkins considering Plan B, Brad Pitt and Dee Dee Gardner had so much to do with Moonlight. Yeah. And I think it happens a lot. Uh, I don't remember who won Best Director that year. I think it was um, Ang Lee, Life of Pi. So this is one of the things. If the if best director is the director of the film that wins best picture then we know that everybody gets a chance to speak i think a lot of movies that are in that position uh position themselves that way damien chazelle won best director and had already had his chance to speak which is why he was at the back of the pack he was not going to talk about la la land regardless conversely the example that comes to my mind is when Argo won Best Picture and Ben Affleck did not win Best Director. He was denied. Uh, And that is relatively unusual for something that wins Best Picture not to win Best Director. Right. So he gave the acceptance speech because, of course, everybody knew that was his project. That was his kind of creation. Uh, And so it was important for him to be the voice of it. Similarly to me, Barry Jenkins is known to be the architect of Moonlight. He, you know, was the driving force behind adapting it. He was the one who went looking for all the funding and all those producers and the distribution and so forth. $1.5 million. Like nothing. uh, It's nothing. That is nothing to make a movie like that. Um, Um, I will, the correction, it was not Ang Lee. Uh, That year that 12 Years a Slave won Best Picture, it was Gravity and Alfonso Cuaron. Ang Lee won the year before. Right. So again, Alfonso Cuaron gives his best director speech. Mm -hmm. If Gravity had won Best Picture, the Gravity producers would have accepted. Uh, In the case of 12 Years a Slave, had Steve McQueen won for Best Director, maybe other producers would have spoken. However, this does bring up something interesting. Uh, When you talk about Brad Pitt and everybody saying how wonderful he is for letting him have his, letting everybody have their moment. And it really rings a bell, of course, because this week when, uh, when La La Land discovered that they did not win, it was producer Jordan Horowitz who was like, no, 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 stop everybody, stop. Uh, you know, Moonlight, you guys won. And people are saying that he's amazing, that he is so generous and incredible. I saw a headline, more than one, that said, Jordan Horowitz is the hero we, we need. need right now. I know. <laughs> that was the Washington Post, I think. And so it kind of is a similar phrasing to what you said about Brad Pitt. And there's a weirdness to thinking that, oh, isn't it generous of white men to let these people of color, these men of color, have their moment? as though they weren't entitled to it anyway. Is this, um, you know, odd coincidences? Or are are we in a weird narrative of thinking that 
celebrity people or decorated people are are more entitled to more time at the microphone. Well, in Brad Pitt's defense, I would say that I only learned of his generosity um, behind the scenes, or not learned of, but um, really sort of appreciated more his generosity behind the scenes um, from an article I've linked to quite often in The Undefeated that called him the wokest white man in Hollywood, written by a black writer. Um, and not only listing that example at the Oscars and the acceptance speech, but his support of films featuring voices that wouldn't otherwise be heard. So, yes, 12 Years a Slave, Moonlight, and there's a long list of films. So that headline, The Wokest White Man in Hollywood, um, I think is a little bit different than the Jordan Horowitz and all these headlines being like, what a great guy he was for, what, doing what he was supposed to do? And let's be fair, Jordan Horowitz uh, did just what he was supposed to do, but what he did do, what is notable, is how he took control of the situation and gave it a narrative that didn't exist. Unlike his fucking colleague. That's correct. Uh, Remember the guy who sulked off stage after giving his speech, after knowing that they didn't (laughs) win, and still took that time to be like, but anyway, we didn't win. Uh, Jordan Horowitz is notable because he didn't just stand there and wait for somebody else to sort out the problem. He rounded everything up, made an executive decision, and made something happen. So no disrespect there. I'm just saying some of the headlines are a little over the top. Now, we've been talking about Brad Pitt. Can't really talk about Brad Pitt these days without mentioning somebody else. Will that always be true? I don't know. It is for Jennifer Aniston. (laughs) Okay. All right. Very good. Um... Anyway, so, of course, that person is Angelina Jolie, who was in the headlines this week because her ad for Guerlain came out, Um, one-minute commercial shot at Miraval with uh, Terrence Malick. Um, The brand is making a big push into the fragrance marketplace. They want to sort of lean on their history and their label and really become a premier brand for fragrance. They're hoping something like 75 million euros of Montgerlant will be sold um, underneath or in partnership with Angelina Jolie as their ambassador. Um, So she's been out there this week. And, you know, it's a few days now after Brad Pitt has produced another Oscar-winning film, another diverse representative Oscar-winning film supporting the black community. Um, I think we've seen over the last couple of months that Brad Pitt is still firmly entrenched within the Hollywood community in terms of popularity. And curiously enough, a couple of weeks ago, I sent you, Duanna, an article in The Hollywood Reporter that listed some of Angelina Jolie's upcoming projects that she's going to either direct this or do that. And they talked about her upcoming Netflix uh, film, First They Killed My Father, and mentioned like a really weird detail that Netflix had to pay like a million dollars to fly her private with her kids over to Cambodia for the screening. And then there was also like a listing of um, examples of how she might not be as popular in Hollywood anymore, bringing up the Sony hack and Scott Rudin's email, calling her, I think, a spoiled brat and that she was nothing. And so we... In the aftermath of the Angelina Jolie thing, we actually did a one-off podcast. Do you remember? I do. Absolutely. It was probably the the beta podcast for this podcast. Yeah, a prototype. And it was 
the only thing we talked about in that podcast, and we will link to it um, in this post, everybody, um, was Angelina Jolie leaving Brad Pitt. And at the time, we were both like, well, shit, she owned his ass. She's, you know, shown once again her media savvy. And then, of course, now what? Five or six months has passed. And not that Angelina Jolie has lost any ground, but Brad Pitt certainly has come off the ropes and has done so quite well. So what do you think? What do we think of Angelina's future standing in Hollywood? Well, I wonder if what we can do first is, can you explain, tell me a little bit in like color commentary, there's my sports reference, (laughs) tell me what it looks like for Brad Pitt to be back. Obviously he, as you said, he's had a big win with Moonlight, he's the producer therein, but he was the producer therein before any of this ever happened. He didn't do that in reaction. And nobody uh, awarded it Best Picture because of Brad Pitt, per se. So what does it look like to be embraced? Because when we were talking about whether or not he was out or he was going to be in trouble, I think we were talking about public opinion. Right. Right. So what does that look like now, today? Well… Listen, we get so many interesting emails, and it's it's 50-50. You know, 50% are like, oh, I, you know, I, I love Angelina and yay Angelina, but 50% are also vociferously critical of us or me um, in that, how can you believe her? She's an asshole. She's a liar. He's great. And she did this to him. How dare she? She's She's accusing him of these awful things, and um, it's already been proven that he didn't do any of them, which I'm not sure if we can say it's already been proven that he didn't, but okay. Um, So at least the side that wants to believe Brad Pitt is as passionate as it's ever been. Okay, so I have a a few things uh, that I want to talk about there, because number one, you said, and I'm quoting you from five minutes ago, so maybe it's a paraphrase. Uh, something to the effect of, well, God, she she nailed his ass to the wall or similar right. when she was, th- when you were talking about the podcast that yeah. we did six months ago. Yeah. And that in itself is an interesting phrasing because it implies some sort of, of uh, it implies some sort of Machiavellian plan when I think what you mean today and what you meant then was that she efficiently got out of what could have been a bad situation. She didn't waver. We appreciate that she was like, nope, this is the new way. I'm out. Uh, So it's a really interesting, and I think you were clear, and I think we were clear, but it's really interesting that to some people, what looks like being decisive and being uh, clear about your children's well-being looks like, well, she's manipulative, and people want to hear what they want to hear, I guess, right? Yeah. The other thing is that, you know, I'm in retrospect, I don't know what the ill effects on Brad Pitt would have been. One of the things that we're talking about and have been talking about is, you know, sort of very public divorce papers for a while and uh, sort of muckraking in the press a little bit. But, you know, he was always going to be and remain very powerful. Fine. He's not fine. Fine. He's going to be fine. Casey Affleck is going to be fine. Johnny Depp's going to be fine. Ryan Lochte's going to be fine. Yes. Not losing any prestige. Not losing any 
clout where business is, in, is concerned. And ultimately, this business is about business, right? Ultimately, this business is about box office. So where does a woman find herself in this business? Well, I was a really… A woman su- like Angelina. I was really surprised that, you know, that we were discussing the idea of like, well, what if they don't like her anymore? What if they don't uh, want to work with her? Because I w- I'm thinking, really? Is it so… Is she so vulnerable to likes and dislikes? Because she's had some box office successes. And then I sort of thought to myself, and some failures. Uh, She's had some real wins and has some real fans. And then I thought, and, you know, and a lot of projects that the Lara Croft people are not seeing, you know, uh, A Mighty Heart and By the Sea are not for them. So the question now that I think we're kind of looking at is how vulnerable exactly is she? Especially because can we not forget this is the most beautiful woman in the world? Great. Like, I want you to, I wish I could take a picture of Duanna as she said this because it was like she pulled back her hair as if to like project Angelina's face out of her own. It's not far. It's not far to go for me to but her. But what you were saying is like this face, right? I, look, if we're really getting into it, uh, sometimes my friends think that I'm being contrary, but there are some people, I'm not naming names because this is not the point. There are people who I don't think are that beautiful, mainly because there's not a lot of contrast in their face. There are some people who are kind of all one color. To me, one of the reasons Angelina Jolie is beautiful is the same reason that Aishwarya Rai is so beautiful. There's contrast between the colors in her face and her hair and her eyes and her lips. And I'm shocked that not everybody sees this. Anyway. I'm pretty sure most people see it. But, How is yeah. that person yeah. not a completely viable box office entity still? I actually almost stopped the sentence. She could be a completely viable box if she looked <laughs> like that and still make a lot of money. Well, I guess when you pit her against, no pun intended, when you pit her against the sexiest man alive, then in a cage match between the most beautiful woman in the world and the sexiest man alive for public opinion, the sexiest man alive will win. But I don't think it's an either-or proposition. That's what's so interesting here is, you know, they divide their assets and we see, you know, who is wealthier at the end and whatever. But if I'm a studio boss and I can hire either one of them, I'll hire them both for separate movies and I still win. I don't think that the people who dislike her or like him better in the court of public opinion are not going to her movies. But two weeks ago, we sat here at this very table and talked about the EEOC and the systemic discrimination that every major studio, in other words, the decision makers in Hollywood, have taken against women. So clearly, we're dealing with an industry that, by its very DNA, is predisposed to always side with the man. Oh, side with the man. Okay, look. Higher men because they think only men are directors or writers? Yes, absolutely. And let's put a pin in that for a second. But every studio needs leading ladies. It doesn't matter who you like or who you don't like. Every studio is still largely, largely, 
making heterosexual pictures about Caucasian people in which they have a need for Angelina Jolie. Except we come back to that asterisk. Are you talking about her as a producer and a director? Are you talking about somebody who is phasing out of the product of being an actor? Well, I mean, she has claimed that she's no longer interested in being in front of the camera, that her passion is behind the camera. She just did a campaign this week. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, acting, I mean. Um, so so what? Being in a girl lane <laughs> commercial is like verite? So, I mean, that has been her claim. But at the same time, what's also interesting and what we're skirting around is that we talked about her being the most beautiful woman, the face, the sex symbol status. But again, she's past that 40 threshold, a mother of six kids. Does that jerk off in the boardroom still want to jerk off to Angelina Jolie? Oh, yeah, I think she's still there for a good five to seven years if he liked her at all to begin with. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, no, what happens, though, uh, is that the leading men get younger and younger. You know, I don't know who who's the biggest male box office star right now who's not pursuing directing and writing and whatever. Dwayne Johnson? The Rock? Really? Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, who else? Who's a, who's a, when I say a leading man. Like, I'm going to throw up when I say this, but like Mark Wahlberg? Sure. Like, the problem is then that if you cast Mark Wahlberg, you don't really cast Angelina Jolie opposite him. It's a good point, Joanna, because they are similarly aged. But I would not want to see any movie where uh, Mark Wahlberg and Angelina Jolie are cast together. But you never would. You know, part of the issue is that there are fewer, incredibly, there are fewer and fewer men to cast Angelina Jolie opposite. So she plays moms. She plays, you know, these singular women who have singular noble focuses and how many of those movies are there. And that's where we are where we are. You mean on Gravitas? Like there's no male with that kind of star power, that kind of otherworldly movie stardom? I think there are, actually. I just don't think that they're... uh, They're almost past romance pictures, you know? Uh, Short of... It's complicated to really jump around uh, genre-wise. We don't really watch romances about people of a certain age. We watch people in their 20s and 30s fall in love. And then the movies about people in their 40s and 50s are about them falling out of love. They're about the complications that ensue. Uh, They're about the children that they adopt who are lost via trains, uh, you know, who are winsome. But it's, it's almost different stories. And so it is a relatively short list for an Angelina Jolie when we talk about movie roles. But maybe that's no problem because, as you say, she doesn't really want to be in front of the camera anymore. So You're making a doughty face there. I am making a doughty face. So then, yeah, then we're like, okay, well, who does she have enough in the directing and producing arm to keep her going? Where do you see her in five years? I'm Sandra. And I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. I think in five years, I keep thinking about Maleficent. I keep thinking about the fact Maleficent is almost immune to everything we've been talking about. Uh, She's playing a villain, which plays into some people's perception of her. It doesn't require a leading man. uh, And it doesn't require a youthful beauty in the same way. It is a little bit of an event picture. And God knows, as we're surrounded by Beauty and the Beast right now, as we're drowning in Beauty and the Beast, I feel like event pictures have legs, can continue to have legs. So I can see more of that for her. But again, that feels like it's in front of the camera. Uh, Like an event picture every five years or so. Maybe, yeah. Yeah. Um, And meanwhile, the ones behind the camera are maybe smaller, maybe more intimate. That is part of Arguably, that's where stories are going in terms of smaller, more intimate pictures, uh, that there's a bit of an exhaustion which with the superhero mega blockbuster. So maybe that's where we see her. And we'll see if there's enough of that to keep her going. You talked about the event picture. And that leads me to our next subject. That's Jake Gyllenhaal. So Jake Gyllenhaal, a few years ago, earlier in his career, made the event picture. I mean, The Prince of Persia is the biggest example. It wasn't critically acclaimed. It didn't do as well at the box office um, as they were hoping for it to qualify as like a a smash hit fucking Avengers situation. And then he recalibrated. Well, can we back up for a second? Because I feel like you've been almost chronicling Jake Gyllenhaal more steadily than almost anybody else. Is that fair? I don't know. I'm not sure. What was Jake Gyllenhaal supposed to be? It's, I, I've been thinking about Jake Gyllenhaal in preparation for today all day. And so I looked, of course, first at his IMDb and where that goes. And I thought about Jake Gyllenhaal in Brokeback Mountain, where arguably the more, um, what do I want to say? The more flashy role was Heath Ledger's. Because that was internalized pain mm-hmm. and his anguish mm-hmm. for sure is, is, that, is that much more obvious and therefore when you watch it, it, it gets more attention. But listen, that film and the performances were choice class A across the board. Oh, sure. But when you talk about Jake Gyllenhaal, for example, in that film, that's something that we would talk about uh, writing-wise as he's our way in. Yes. He's our kind of semi-neutral eyes on the situation that you go, oh, I'm him. I get it. So that we can watch Heath that's Ledger right. be Heath that's Ledger. That's right. And he, that's not an easy role to play, but that's the role that often gets underappreciated. At the time, I remember reporting that Jake Gyllenhaal was a little bit sucky-faced about the fact that Heath Ledger was the one getting all the attention. Um, he got over it and moved on. And then, you know, got into the Prince of Persia and the bigger box office films. It didn't work. And then he kind of said, oh, wait, but I loved 
the Brokeback experience. I'm going to go back there. And since then, his choices, his decisions, his films have been, I mean, End of Watch is probably one of my favorite movies of the last 10 years. It is so good. Now, when you say back there, you mean to broke back that, you know, the Donnie, I mean, remember he started with Donnie Darko or that was. I don't like, that's what I want you to tell us. Like when you say go back to broke back, does that mean more indie, smaller scale? Like what does he want? And that's what I think we're seeing right now, what he wants. You know, this is an actor, again, who started with Donnie Darko. That's a weird movie, and he played a weirdo. He's a beautiful guy who can play the weirdo. Okay, maybe he's not your flavor, but can we, can we say pretty much popularity-wise, universally, like you say Jake Gyllenhaal's name and people start fanning themselves? Um, <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm sorry, I'm, but… No, I'm not just trying to cause conflict, but I think that's part of what we're talking about here. I feel like that was what was supposed to happen. Jake Gyllenhaal was supposed to be… A heartthrob? A heartthrob. An A++ list, faint in his path kind of movie star, and it never quite added up. Something about him is too quirky, or he makes quirky choices or something that took away that sort of generic heartthrobby thing. Ryan Reynolds thing. Right. Right. That same quality that I'm discussing is what makes me like him more, like Jake Gyllenhaal more. Um, And I, sorry, Ryan Reynolds, I could care less (laughs) about a Ryan Reynolds. But I think there's something about Jake Gyllenhaal to me, to a casual Jake Gyllenhaal student that is a bit willfully offbeat and it keeps him from ascending to these sort of A-list heights. He's not Brad Pitt whenever no, Brad Pitt he's was… he's closer to Ryan Gosling though. Right. But I'm thinking Jake Gyllenhaal is 36. Yep. And at 36, Brad Pitt was Brad Pitt. Um, at 36, George Clooney was, was not George Clooney, but… He was Doug Ross by 36, wasn't yeah, he? Yeah, sure. Yeah. But nobody knew he was going to become yeah, like… No. George, Siriana, Amal, Clooney. Um, (laughs) I love that Amal followed Siriana. (laughs) Makes perfect sense to me, guys. Um, But the Jake Gyllenhaal who, you know, we have to say it, who posed with Taylor Swift and then was embarrassed to have done so, is almost a different guy than the guy who makes, as you say, kind of weird movies, plays odd guys. Uh, my favorite Jake Gyllenhaal role is Nightcrawler. And oh, yes. He's a weirdo. Even Yasik. Like, I mean, when we watched that, he was like, holy shit, Jake Gyllenhaal can act. Um, and it was, no, and that has been the, the Jake Gyllenhaal trajectory over, I would say, the last five or six years. Um, and it has brought us now to Broadway, starring as George… In Sundays in the Park with George, right? Sunday in the Sunday? Park Sunday, okay, I'm, right, Sunday in the Park with George. And he is George Surratt, right? And, um, I mean, it's Sondheim, right? And Duanna's like, the way Duanna nods as if she's a proud teacher, like she, like your nod was like, Yes, student, go on. Well, no, I'm just waiting so that I can say that you didn't have to sound that surprised when you said Broadway. <laughs> um, so, 
And that is why this is coming up, because I know you are the musical theater expert in the Lainey Gossip family. Yes, I'll take that. And I sent this to you because last week, um, Sunday in the Park with George opened on Broadway to rave reviews. Yes. Um, I sent you, I think, the Ben Brantley review, Mm -hmm. the New York Times, Mm -hmm. and like, he fell over. Ben Brantley fell yes. over. And he never, never does. That's the the notable thing there. He never falls over. And literally, he fell over. I mean, he, the praise could not have been higher for Jake Gyllenhaal. And Jake Gyllenhaal afterwards in interviews was like, you know what? I've I've loved musical theater my whole life. I, I've loved singing. Um, and I did it in high school. And I just love that I can do it now. I mean, I'm par- paraphrasing. And I sent it to you and I was like, Duanna, um... He's one of you. <laughs> and I, th- I think I actually wrote in the post about it um, that he's one of those people in that Saturday Night Live sketch, you know, the Crucible cast party. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think you mentioned that actually, or I might have responded I did. at length. <laughs> yeah, he is. He's a celebrity, a a movie star actor who has moved to this new place. One of the things that's really interesting is, you know, uh, everything is changing now, but the existing hierarchy at which I thumb my nose has always been, you know, acting-wise, sort of commercials and then uh, guest-starring roles on the kind of disease of the week shows that none of us are watching or crime of the week shows and then sort of prestige television and then film. And theater has always been off to the side. It's its own world, right? Uh, You know, a lot of people use Broadway interchangeably with musicals. But of course, lots of shows on Broadway are not, in fact, musicals. And the theater people are their own world. And they are, you know, you know, anytime you read an interview with one of your favorites who's on Broadway... They will talk about how they shake in their boots because these are the real actors, the real actors who have to do it night after night live with no retakes, with no changes. Uh, And so there's a real sort of extra respect to live actors, Broadway actors. I don't understand, and I'm being as earnest as I can, I don't always understand why there's a skepticism about it. I think the idea is, well singing and dancing is earnest. And so earnestness is cheesy, but let's, but I can't actually look at, I don't know. I, I, I think the reason that there's skepticism is because people sort of go, well, musicals have singing and dancing sometimes and singing and dancing is cheesy. And so I can't take it as seriously as an Oscar winning tour de force but I don't know any actual actor who would feel that way. So that's what's an interesting disconnect about it to me. Can you help me bridge the gap? Does this make you appreciate Jake Gyllenhaal more, less, differently? Oh, I. when you say that, you said a few minutes ago that I've been on this Jake Gyllenhaal coverage for years, what I can say, and I couldn't answer that question if anybody else has, what I can say is that I have so appreciated, and I'll use this meme, that Jake Gyllenhaal has the range. (laughs) (laughs) 
Um, and I thought about him so much on Oscar night, watching the one-two punch of previous year best actor Leonardo DiCaprio mm -hmm. and current year best actor Casey Affleck. And when we think about the actors with range and the ones who are quote-unquote given credit for said range, Leonardo DiCaprio can't even do an episode of Saturday Night Live. <laughs> How yes. the fuck is he going to go Broadway? And never, never has, right? I don't think that Leonardo DiCaprio ever has been on Broadway or has ever talked about it. No, and he certainly hasn't done Saturday Night Live, which is not every night, but it is a certain kind of live performance. And it's a certain kind of comedic live performance with input. The most effective hosts, right, have a certain input and are inspiring enough to have those writers write for you, write great sketches. But I think about all the hype that Leo got, especially last year, where underrated, underappreciated. I'm like, really? Because to me, he plays the same person over and over again. And Casey Affleck, well, fuck. Like, I mean, Casey Affleck was excellent in Manchester by the Sea, but am I supposed to believe it, it was a, am I supposed to believe that it was a stretch for him to play like a withdrawn, mumbly guy from Massachusetts? Like I or am I supposed to look at a Jake Gyllenhaal who has done a Prince of Persia with the physicality and who has done a Nightcrawler with the weirdoness and the darkness and who has done an end of watch with all the bravado that you require to play a policeman um, and then has done not just one form of Broadway, but as you said, Duanna, a musical and a drama, Constellations with mm -hmm. Ruth Wilson. Mm -hmm. So I say to myself, does Jake Gyllenhaal, even though everybody knows Jake Gyllenhaal, get the credit for having the range? I mean, the other thing is that Jake Gyllenhaal, to me, still seems young. You compared him to Ryan Gosling. And Ryan Gosling, similarly, comes off as, as still being in weight, still being young, even in leading man status when he was, uh, you know, nominated for leading, a leading actor. Uh, Ten years ago in Half Nelson, I think. So what? That would have been 26 yeah. years old? Because he's around the same age as Jake, no? That's right. He is. Uh, in fact, possibly exactly the same age. Please wait while our fact checkers get on that. Uh, but arguably seemed more grown up in Half Nelson if we're getting there. I mean, to me, La La Land is about a couple of kids. That's the whole point. And Jake Gyllenhaal seems to play young men. And I, I don't, I almost don't know what, uh, what will change that. Uh, and I think maybe possibly part of this Broadway run is a bit of a recasting, a bit of a growing up, uh, because there's something about him that remains boyish. And I also wonder if that's left over from being the kid brother of a Maggie Gyllenhaal, mm -hmm. uh, having that younger brother goofy thing yeah. in all of our memories. I also don't think it's a bad thing. If when you are 36 years old, you're still playing young people trying to figure it out. I saw a Jake Gyllenhaal movie last year at the film festival uh, called Demolition, which um, did not make it to wide release, uh, but he still plays a young type character despite having arguably adult problems. If you are continuing to play a young person when you're 36 years old, there's, that's only good because you have time to get older and get into those older roles. Uh, so I wonder if possibly Broadway does that for us and for him. 
Our fact checkers, i.e. our iPhones and our fingers, can confirm that Jake Gyllenhaal and Ryan Gosling were actually born the same year, 1980, and just a month apart. Ryan Gosling is a month older than Jake. Could you see Jake Gyllenhaal being cast in a movie with Angelina Jolie? No. I mean, not unless that was the point, right? I would like to. (laughs) Can I put that out there? Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) But, you know, there's a point where uh, I think this is not a spoiler anymore. Uh, in the only topic we ever talk about anymore, Big Little Lies, uh, <laughs> when Nicole Kidman was cast opposite Alexander Skarsgård, you pointed out to me that there was a line added to the show that does not appear in the book about how he's younger, much younger. Uh, and that, then they leave it. But, you know, that had to be sort of hat-tipped and acknowledged in a way that I think would not if the age spread were the other way around. So I'm not hopeful, but we'll see. I just want to point out one other thing while we're talking about this. While we're talking about the people who are on Broadway and notably the people who are not. Uh, this I'm just going to list a few people who are appearing on Broadway in 2017. And these are leaving out the Broadway stars whose names you know. Uh, I'm not going to talk about Christian Borle, perhaps, because we we know that. But just talking about big name movie actors that you know and see what they all have in common. So Kate Blanchett, Glenn Close, Sally Field, Jake Gyllenhaal, uh, Allison Janney, Laura Linney, Cynthia Nixon, Mark Ruffalo, Kobe Smulders, huh, uh, Patti LuPone, Kevin Kline, and Josh Groban. Sure, Josh Groban. So with the exception of Josh Groban, Kobe, and Jake, mm-hmm. you're dealing with people of a certain vintage. Uh, yeah. I mean, look, Mark Ruffalo, I don't know if he goes into a certain vintage or not. Um, to me, I would also say they're a certain skill level. Those are people who are universally acknowledged to be excellent actors. They don't suck. Laura Linney and Mark Ruffalo. Glenn Close. Yeah. Allison Kate, Janney. Kate Blanchett, yo. Yeah. Um, you know, and uh and yeah, I threw Josh Groban in there semi on purpose, but I think there's something to note here. If a celebrity, if a movie actor makes it to Broadway and stays there for a period of time, sometimes they do two and a half weeks and there's a very quiet thank you and good night. Yeah. Um, I think there's something to be said for their continuing talent. And yeah, there's probably also something to be said for somebody's vintage. Uh, that this is a place where talent is more appreciated than uh, number than number or or you know skin firmness, but <laughs> that's good. <laughs> but not put it this way: not everybody who's a certain age is on Broadway, right? Right. If you are gonna be there. You gotta have the goods, which means no Leonardo DiCaprio. Uh uh-uh. uh <laughs> And it means Jake Gyllenhaal has the goods. So we're going to pivot right now to the goods of one Connie Britton. Oh, my God. Watching you do that pivot, I was like, let's see. Let's see where (laughs) we're going. That was good. Connie Britton, Nashville. Yeah. Connie, well, Connie Britton, full stop, right? Because Connie Britton is much more than Nashville. Connie Britton is Mrs. Coach. Connie Britton is Raina James on Nashville. Connie Britton is next, I don't know what, but it's coming soon. Because uh, she's not on Nashville anymore. Spoiler alert. Sure. Spoiler alert. It's a couple weeks old For now. For those of you who watch it, because I'm not sure that many people watch it. 
Well, I think we have to discuss what happened to Nashville, right? Nashville was finished on ABC, which is to say uh, canceled, but with a fair amount of, of warning so that it could kind of be tied up and taken care of. And then it was picked up again by CMT. And usually when these kinds of things happen, there are particular terms and sometimes there are cast restraints or budget restraints. I don't know the details of that. But the show did move on to CMT and I think it did cost less to produce. And so we got to a place where I guess Connie Britton told the writers that she was done. She she wanted to leave the show. Told the producers she wanted to leave the show. So they killed her. So uh, a couple of episodes ago on Nashville, uh, yes, the Raina James character, I guess, was in a car accident and uh, was around long enough to uh, say goodbye to everybody. And then, yeah, I died, essentially. Uh, I want to I'm checking because I believe there were some whispers about a coma. But yeah, the character died. And so, I don't know. How do you feel about this? Well, you taught me this lesson. You either kill them off or you send them to uh, California where they become a congressman. (laughs) (laughs) That is a West Wing fucking Sorkin reference. Oh, and that is a shout out to uh, somebody. If Twitter will open, I'll explain exactly who that's a shout out to. Somebody tweeted at me that she was starting the West Wing because she was so tired of not getting our West Wing references on this podcast, which I'm thrilled about. Well, then it's a ma- another spoiler there. Uh, um, but yes. not till season four. It doesn't mean, you don't know. You don't <laughs> know. Shh. Shh. <laughs> it's Jordana. And Jordana says, finally starting the West Wing because I'm tired of missing Lady Gossip and Duanna Lisa's reference. Hashtag fucking Sorkin. Fucking Sorkin. So, yeah. Here's the thing. There were some people, I guess, who were upset that uh, the character died. And my question is, what else should they have done? What should, obviously I'm coming at this with immense bias in terms of, we're talking about television writing. Television writing is what I do for a a day-to-day living when I'm not doing this. But I'm always curious when audiences are upset about what they would prefer. So what is a scenario that you would have preferred in that situation. Yeah. Do you want her to go to work every day and hate it and not want to be there? I want to clarify that when we've talked about TV on this podcast before, we've talked about six-year contracts. But I think when a show moves to a whole new network, it can be a whole new deal. Oh, really? Um, Look, something like moving to CMT from ABC is pretty unprecedented. Yeah. Uh, that's only been done a couple of times. Community did it when they went to… Mindy's show did it Yahoo. too, right? Mindy went to Hulu recently. Yeah. Um, there's certainly not a, a situation that is formal enough to be, oh, this is what happens when you move to a second network. Uh, I think there are arcane provisions in contracts about what it could be, but basically… If ABC writes up the contract, they have no say in what happens because they're not airing the show anymore. Um, so I think probably Connie Britton had a contract that was uh, what they what they would call, you know, uh, mutually agreeable, like that she could exit at such time as was mutually agreeable to she and the producers. So as a writer then, you know this. Do you even want to write for her anymore? Well, sometimes you have to because sometimes… 
that's your whole show. That's the engine of your show, you know? And I would argue that, you know, if it was, say, and I'm not uh, casting aspersions here, say it was, oh, Reba. Um, if Reba wants to quit the show, the show is called Reba. You don't have a show anymore. <laughs> right. <laughs> I love, like, the random references. Where did Reba – actually, I guess now. Nashville, Reba, I get it. Kind of. And also, I wanted a show that was somebody's name. Um, <laughs> and because lest I be casting aspersions here, there are some names I thought about and did not use. As far as I have heard, Reba McIntyre has never been anything but absolutely wonderful no, you're right, and so you don't want to cast aspersions. But I guess maybe the Charlie Sheen, maybe that but is that a, a good example? Sort of. I mean, he, well, not necessarily. Yes and no. Charlie Sheen was certainly in a position where they didn't want to have to work around him and let him go. But if you let go of one of the two men, you still have another man, uh, and you still have the concept, right, of – Two men raising another man. If somebody left the full house back in the day, you still have a full house. <laughs> right. Uh, as we learned when Mary-Kate and Ashley were like, no, we're not doing Fuller House. Are you kidding me? Yeah. Um, you still have a concept for a show there. Uh, so what I'm getting at there is if Nashville were a different kind of show, if the show were called Raina, I don't think she would have left. Or I think they would have asked her to stick around while they shut down the show rather than have Raina leave. We're talking about a show where the other characters can and will go on without her and deal with her loss and who, you know, is a is a fundamental part of the show, but not the entire reason for the show to exist. And so I think that that is an important distinction. Uh, while we're talking, I should say I've never heard anything but good things about Connie Britton too. But she's a star. She has things happening. You know, she played a really small role in uh, Ryan Murphy's American crime story, uh, The People versus O.J. Simpson. Uh, she played Faye Resnick. And it's a role that I really think could have been expanded. The whole Faye Resnick and Chris Jenner thing could have really been expanded had she been more available. But she didn't have a lot of time. God, that series was perfect, though. It was the perfect perfect combination of camp and substance and performance. If you haven't watched it, it's time to go back and watch those 10 episodes. You get a lot of Sterling K. Brown, who now, of course, is a full-on celebrity. Thank you, This Is Us. Uh, And it's really worth your time. Sarah Paulson. So I guess that's the other question. What would you have had the writers do? Write in, tell me. Uh, and if this has happened to your favorite show, if somebody has left, you want them to A, end the show, B, put the character into a forever coma uh, so they could come back, or… Like on a soap opera, like right. general hospital. Or, yeah, send them off to California or, you know, Zimbabwe or uh, wherever in a fake storyline. Oh, they're off being married or doing humanitarian work. Oh, I know. Sorry to interrupt you, but I know. I, can you talk then about Nina Dobrev and Vampire Diaries? I can And the ta- character of Elena Catherine. Yes. Uh, and what writers do. Yeah. When Nina Dobrev reached the end of six seasons on the Vampire Diaries, 
she uh, she was ready to leave. And, and the fan reaction was similar, right? Oh, yeah. People absolutely. who were upset, like, how could she go and what's the show going to be? Sure, absolutely. And they gave, she gave them lots and lots of notice about uh, how it was going to go down and, you know, time for them to write it properly. And, of course, as you point out, she was playing two characters. Mm-hmm. She was, well, at least two. She was playing Elena and Catherine and uh, whomever of their ancestors happened to show up from the past. Right. Uh, the beauty of this, of course, was that the show was able to sustain itself on the, you know, on the mythos of Stefan and Damon and Caroline and everybody else who frequently died and came back to life. Spoilers <laughs> all around. Uh, and for what it's worth, Nina and Elena, and uh, I don't think we know yet, I don't think it's aired yet, uh, at minimum, Nina and Elena have come back for the series finale. I do not know if Catherine or any of their other uh, associates will also come back, any of their other sort of ancestors. But, you know, giving lots of notice is helpful because it helps the writers. Sometimes when you're Jessica Beale and you are 17 years old and you want off of Seventh Heaven, uh, your character A... I believe the sequence of events is A gets married, B has a beer, and C moves to Buffalo, never to be seen again. <laughs> I may have a couple of those details wrong, but not many. Um, so that is to say, if you have a show about a family and one of your teenage actors doesn't want to be on the show anymore, you don't want to have a death that is going to devastate the family and influence what you write for the rest of that fictional family for years. So in this case, the character of Mary was just off in Buffalo, living her life. Yeah. Uh, and, and came back for the finale. I believe she also came back for the finale. So is that the difference when we talk about Connie Britton in Nashville? Because you talking about all of that, and I have two questions here. You talking about all that makes me think about Doug Ross. Right. Going back to George Clooney. And so he left… And then ER went on for many, many, many years. Mm-hmm. And then when they wrapped up ER, he came back um, and he and Nurse Carol lived happily ever after. Right. That would be Juliana Margulies. Right. Because he wasn't dead. Um, so my question is, as a writer, when you do the kill-off, then you can't leave room for the Nina Dobrevs and the Doug Rosses to come back when the series eventually wraps, number one. And number two, is the reaction different? Like, do we remember an uproar when Dr. Doug Ross, pediatric uh, ER doctor, pediatric surgeon, he was in pediatrics, wasn't he? Yes. Yeah, yeah, he was. Ironically, because it was, that was the irony that Doug Ross, George Clooney played a child doctor and then for years and years he wouldn't settle down or have babies, now he's having babies. Um, <laughs> George, Siriana, Amal Clooney. <laughs> um, so do you find that the television watcher is different now where he or she is more demanding and feels more entitled. Well, it's a it's a whole ecosystem because when you say, was there any outroar? Well, there was no place to have an outroar because there was no internet. When I'd have to go back and exactly check my dates, but I believe ER premiered in 94, which means I believe Doug Ross left circa 98, 99, which means there was no online forums to be having this on. There were, you know, casual BBSs and boards that took eight years to load, but there was not this mass collection of what you can see on Twitter of what the outrage was. The other thing that makes uh, a difference, of course, is that, well, 
Doug Ross, the character, was a regular human. You could believe that he was off somewhere. Mary Camden is a regular human who was off somewhere. And Elena Gilbert is uh, a vampire, so, <laughs> you know, things are okay for her. Right. Um, the issue is when it's a, when it's a Raina James, fictionally, uh, who was the brightest light on the fictional show, she can't be off doing things without us knowing about it. And why can't we be there if she's off doing things? Why can't we follow her unless she says, I'm going to become a hermit in Idaho who knits? Uh, you know, it, sometimes it twists the story in too many knots to have to deal with where that character is. You know, another example is The Good Wife. Uh, the character uh, of Will Gardner died, was shot. And that's because what else were you going to do? Uh, there was no further way to to keep he and Alicia Florrick apart and unhappy. So if he moved somewhere, she would move with him. If he decided he didn't want to practice law anymore and wanted to go somewhere, she would go with him. The show would be over. Uh, so instead, you have the character die. You have the character who loves them, who is oriented around them, learn to deal with their death. Unfortunately, for what it's worth, a, a death or a loss in a family is a really relatable thing that not only is good drama, but is the kind of drama that a lot of people can watch and relate to. Uh, and it allows the ecosystem of the show to go on when the show is bigger than that person. So I'd say it's never an easy decision, but there's always uh, a question to be had. But yeah, that's my that's my question to to you fans is if there's a uh, an actor who's left, or if this is the one that really sticks with you, what would you have preferred happen instead? And now to the final part of our show, which I feel like is becoming a regular thing. We end with, do we need to care about? Yeah. I, I care deeply about, do we need to care about? And uh, we are featuring in this week's installment of, do we need to care about, um, Sherry Appleby. Yeah, so, you know, there's a substantial portion of people who cared about Sherry Appleby because of Roswell. If you're a Roswell fan, if you watched that show also gave us Katherine Heigl uh, back in the day, then you knew Sherry Appleby. But then there were a lot of people who didn't and didn't know who she was. And Roswell went off the air some years ago. Uh, I have a hand, a hand up. Yes, go on. I don't care about Roswell. And so I need to be convinced about Sherry Appleby because... I also watched, anyway, continue. But yes, I am one of those people that needs to know why the answer to this question, do we need to care about Sherry Appleby, is yes. So to be honest, I didn't watch Roswell either. I can talk askance about Roswell. I kind of get the idea, but it was not one of my top 10 WB programs. Was it on the same time as Gilmore Girls? It was in and around there, yes. Okay. Um, and then, uh, Sherry Appleby did, uh, I think had a break before she did a show called Life Unexpected, which was on for a couple of years time, was, uh, unceremoniously canceled, depending on who you ask, uh, before it's time and really was somebody who was really kind of out of the spotlight until, uh, she did a, a few episodes of Girls remember that she was the girlfriend of Adams who he uh, treated really disrespectfully right. while they were having sex. Okay. And there was a lot of debate over whether was that non-consensual, was that 
rape? Was that just uncomfortable? Was it okay? And she sort of started to gain attention. And very soon after that, she got Unreal. Uh, and the first season of Unreal, if you don't know, if you have not watched, is of course, uh, well, all the seasons of Unreal are a takeoff on the concept of The Bachelor. But the first season of Unreal is one of those very perfect seasons of television. Excellent. It is doing one thing. It is doing it very, very well. Yes. And Sherry Appleby is the lead. And I would say without reservation, the show hinges on her. Yes. She is, what did you say um, Jake Gyllenhaal was in Brokeback Mountain? The way in? That's right. Um, I said Jake Gyllenhaal was our way in, which is the eyes through which we see the show. And is that how you would characterize Sherry Appleby? Okay, so this is what's so amazing. She plays a character whose name is Rachel and yes, is our way in. Is an amazing producer who explains to us how it all works and what all happens. But Rachel's kind of an asshole and kind of a shithead. And this is amazing because we didn't used to get uh, weigh-in characters who were that. We certainly didn't used to get female characters who were that. Uh, And a little later on, Rachel is joined by her boss, uh, played by Constance Zimmer, Quinn, who is kind of her equal in work and in assholeness. And uh, it's kind of amazing. So all of this is kind of great. And there was a really interesting article uh, last year when Shiri Appleby, who, you know, now she's the star of a show that everybody's talking about, directed episode six of season two of Unreal, which is something that is, you know, you see it all the time. Oh, actors directed this episode and whatnot. But it's actually, it's a hell of a lot of work. It's a hard thing to do. And even when you're working with a crew who is very warm to you, who know her, it's a difficult thing to do. And in that article, uh, and I will have it up so we can read about it. She goes into detail about how she resurrected her career, how she said to her husband, I need to get out of this rut of no work that I have. And he said, okay, go do it then. Go figure out what you're going to do. And she started having conversations with people and talking about wanting to direct and all those things that led her to being uh, a part of Unreal and to directing. Uh, Do you care yet? I do care because as soon as you said that, then I started thinking about other women on TV shows who have also started directing. And the two names that came to mind are Lucy Liu has been directing episodes for Elementary and... Also, Ellen Pompeo, I think, has started directing episodes of Grey's Anatomy. A little bit different in terms of the Ellen Pompeo example, because how many seasons has Grey's been on now? Lots. Lots. And she's only recently started doing it. Whereas Lucy Liu, I believe, started directing episodes in season two, like um, Sherry Appleby. Right. And here's what's extra interesting about Lucy Liu. I was thinking about this uh, because I was, as I always am, reading my Beyonce documentary. (laughs) Biography. My my fiancé <laughs> biography slash I wish it was a documentary. Uh, and thinking about, you know, those lines in Independent Women, she shouts out uh, my girl Drew and Cameron D and Lucy Liu. She was literally mentioned in the same breath as those two by Beyonce. Lucy Liu was supposed to be like a big movie star, right? Could have been, yes. But didn't you think she was kind of positioned to be? Like, that's where everything was kind of heading. I still remember that red starburst of a dress she wore one year. 
I mean, on paper, she has it all, right? right? She has not to list looks first, but this is Hollywood. So that is what they look, looks, talent, um, that she does have an it quality to her. I think so, at least. Um, cute, but also sexy and strong at the same time. Like she has it all. But it didn't happen. It did not. It's like Gretchen Mall. Every now and again, there's somebody who is super poised to happen, and they just don't. All the things that are supposed to line up just don't, and you can kind of lie down and pout about it. Or if you're Lucy Lou, you can take control of your career and go, okay, then I'm going to go to the left. And so she is going to the left. She's creating a whole new role for herself. She's creating a whole new job career for herself and not unlike Sherry Appleby in this case, uh, creating a whole new world and way for her to go. And then that also now just triggered another person, Lucy Liu, Ellen Pompeo, Regina King. Yeah. Regina King is directing. Regina King is a sought after director. Absolutely. Regina King, who was sort of a you know, a respected actor, a person that you would have in stuff for sure, then became a director because the work was not always there in front of the camera, right? Which then in turn made people more interested in her in front of the camera again uh, because she was directing all the time and her stuff was so good. It's, it's amazing. And now Regina King has a development deal. It all comes back around to making the work for yourself. And when nobody is going to hand it to you, you claw back and get there by yourself. Uh, and, you know, directing, uh, especially directing episodic television, is uh, kind of something that women tend to do, tend to be able to come into when they're finished being actors, which yeah. is to say when you're talking about Angelina Jolie not being, you know, attractive enough to make it as an actress anymore, uh, that's not my words. That's my conjecture. Uh, like, you know who's a massive television director? Joanna Kearns. You, you know who right. Joanna Kearns is? Yes, the mom on family, not, not family ties. No. Uh, Alan Thicke, um, Mike Seaver, <laughs> Facts of Life. Oh, no, 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 I'm not sorry. Facts of Life. I was like, growing pains, there growing pains. Yeah. There we go. There we go. Uh, did you like my association there? Yeah. Um, yes, Growing Pains, Joanna Kearns. Right. I just want to read this because this is not always visible. And most people, even people who pay attention, don't always read the credits on the show because the show's already happening. Joanna Kearns directed one episode of Growing Pains and since then has directed <clears throat> episodes of Dawson's Creek, Titans, Scrubs, Private Practice, Psych, Grey's Anatomy, Privileged, ER, Ghost Whisperer, Army Wives, Pretty Little Liars, Switched at Birth, Fuller House, and uh, an original made-for-TV movie entitled Defending Our Kids, The Julie Posey Story. She also directed an episode of Pitch. Wow. Yeah. That's Mrs. Seaver. Yeah. That's a full career. Um, and so all this is actually preamble. We are burying the lead because this week it was announced that Sherry Appleby has signed an overall deal with A&E Studios. And so what an overall deal means is that she will create and develop original programming for uh, the A&E networks, uh, so A&E and Lifetime, 
and for outside buyers. Basically, what this means is that a company like an A&E Studios has first crack at, pro- at projects that they will pay her to develop. They are so invested in her business that they will have her develop things under their umbrella and hope to buy them. Basically, at this point, they're saying, what do you got? And we'll take it, or at least we'll take a look at it. Fine. I care. This is somebody, I want to remind you, who was kind of a nobody about five years ago. Five years ago, you would have been hard-pressed to remember somebody's name. This is why Hollywood is so amazing, is that on the one hand, you can be hot and then you're down, but they love a comeback story, and you can always make a comeback. What's the quote there that you had talked about that you say to me sometimes about being a nobody? Are we talking about the greatest quote about being a nobody uh, ever said? Uh, There's a tearful speech, I believe, at the Golden Globes made by Terry Hatcher circa 2004. Right. When she's sobbing down, about Terry Hatcher. Well, this is the, <laughs> the origin of sit down, Terry Hatcher, because she literally, uh, you know, since you bring it up, uh, arguably our friend Lara and I created sit down, which is now a global phenomenon, <laughs> because Terry Hatcher literally would not physically sit in her chair when Mark Cherry was winning awards for Desperate Housewives. But when she won, I believe it was the Golden Globe for that show. Uh, for best performance, she was sobbing and crying and talking about how the industry took a chance on her when I couldn't have been a bigger has-been. And I think that's amazing. There are always second chances and there are always resurrections. And uh, as with Joanna Kearns, there are second careers even. So do you have to care about Sherry Appleby? I think you do. And I think that you will. So you now can study up. And do we have to care about Justin Timberlake? No. On that note, thank you for joining us on Show Your Work. Keep working. Show it off. See you next week. Check us out on iTunes and Google Play. And we will talk to you next week. Bye. Bye. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.